UX Podcast Episode 158. Hello and welcome to UX Podcast, coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden, with listeners in 167 countries from Portugal to Kazakhstan. We are your hosts, Pat Axbom. And James Roy Lawson. Today we are bringing you our interview with Jamie Levy from um, that we recorded at um, Business to Buttons in Stockholm. Jamie is an American author, lecturer, interface designer and user experience strategist. She currently teaches a graduate level course about UX design and strategy at the University of Southern California. Right, and Jamie wrote uh, the book, uh, the very successful book, UX Strategy, How to Device Innovative Digital Products That People Want. And she joined the International Circuit of Speakers at UX events. And in this interview, however, we focus not on UX Strategy, the book, but uh, on the learnings that Jamie had when her desire grew to start creating again, rather than just talking about creating. Yeah, the, the title of the talk is Shoot for the Moon, how UX strategy can for, um, can transform the world. Mm. So I was expecting it to be a little bit more about UX strategy than it ended up And it being. really wasn't at all. Well, some of it. But it was. Yeah, yeah. And we get into a bit yeah. towards the end of the chat. I actually wanted to start off uh, asking you a bit about, because you framed your talk around a person, a friend of yours, that you went to when you were sort of having hesitations about your work and you were not feeling confident and you were producing stuff you're more working in theory uh, as a professor at, where is it, at UC? At UC. Yeah. And uh, you, he asked you these questions around, so who is your inspiration? Can you tell us a bit about that? I think he was trying to have me think, you know, at a higher level. And even though my initial concern was, you know, I, I was like, oh, I'm one of these people, <coughs> like when, when I was at NYU, in the graduate film school, uh, they would t- talk about teachers who just taught, you know, but they didn't actually make anything. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, because um, I took so many years off to do the book and promote the book, and uh, and then now I was out touring, I didn't, I was turning down projects left and right and not making anything, and I was... If you do something, make products for so long, and then you stop after, I I felt like something was missing. A little bit of you had kind of been taken away. Yeah, like I just, it was the two things. Like the one was like I, I didn't know what was wrong, but I knew it was that I, 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 it was clear I'd given up my consulting practice because now I was like a, a lone gun who was touring, and the other part was that here I was you know, out there talking about making innovative products, but I wasn't making jack shit. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was frustrated. And, you know, I, I have that frustration now again, but at that point it was like I went to him and asked him, uh, you know, like it was like here we are in L.A. and where how am I going to work on something innovative when there's like barely anything going on in Los Angeles, just the tech scene there is small compared to San Francisco. And that was when he started asking me about 
people admired. And then when Elon Musk came up, he's like, well, what about Hyperloop? And so he put the idea in my head. Mm. You have to tell us, well, you, you, you took your polo shirt off on stage. That was actually excellent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the first person you thought of uh, was Andy Warhol, right? Definitely. Yeah. And then you thought of Steve Jobs, but he was saying, okay, so maybe somebody alive. And then you took off your sweater. <laughs> yeah, that, it was, um, I didn't take off my sweater when we were having the conversation <laughs> at the bar. Um, it was long before I would think of buying a turtleneck, but uh, mm. what happened was when I started, um, uh, when I p- was m- making a presentation about the Hyperloop, mm. A case study and doing the research and deciding that I wanted to talk about how the conversation inspired me mm. that the pictures of Steve Jobs and Andy Warhol they are all wearing black turtlenecks <laughs> and it just seemed like what's this thing going on with these two like why is it these two guys I singled out and um, and Elon just wears a black shirt and I typically most most people wear a black shirt so I thought <laughs> if I could pull it off literally mm. and figuratively uh that i would uh give it a shot and so then you just went went for it so you you contacted i forget who on linkedin um yeah i, I contacted uh dirk i mean i still would do the same thing that's exactly how i would do it now mm. um dirk I, Albon. I contact dirk Alborn mm. on linkedin mm. you know if i want to uh talk to somebody whether they be a conference organizer or uh, you know, somebody very important at a at a company, I, I just write them a sincere letter, you know, using LinkedIn and uh, hope to hear back. And uh, because he was looking for collaborators and, you know, a UX person was definitely right, right in there. So he responded immediately and, and then I decided to, to, you know, even though Zahn and I were joking about the whole stock op- options things, we realized it wasn't about the stock options at all. You know, it was about that I, I wanted to understand, you know, what's the mystery? What, what is this thing? Because clearly I wasn't going to design a train. I don't no. know anything mm. about uh, engineering. Um, that, But I did see that there was possibility around um, all the possible uh apps or platforms uh, related to it. And so I wanted to, you know, hear more about it and get involved. And so that's how it came about. And you also saw that you, you, you saw or felt, or he saw that it would fill your need to, to, to practice and do some, some real work rather than just teach and tour with a book. I don't think he gave a shit about me as far you as don't? why okay. I would, he would take <laughs> a, cl- I, if you have a pulse, you can become a Hyperloop collaborator. Right. Um, so, <laughs> you know, uh, the thing with crowdsourcing is, um, you know, you have to wait to see if people are going to produce. It's yeah. basically like taking on interns. And so, um, you know, I tried to produce as much as I can, as much as I could, uh, you know, considering uh, the amount of hours I had available. And so I felt the only way that I could collaborate really was by outsourcing, by crowdsourcing it further to my class and making mm-hmm. it um, a project that was uh, part of the University of Southern California. And so that's how that worked out. I think it's a clever and innovative, innovative way to well, uh, fulfill your need to, to actually do some real stuff, but at the same time, 
connected to the teaching work so it's kind of like forwards and backwards at the same time yeah and i learned a lot from it um i decided that that i would do that every semester because uh you know how many times can i have um 40 students who all want to make apps to help mm. them find uh, a parking space on the campus or a frat party i was getting really sick of these apps mm. and so this semester following that, um, I asked the class to propose apps um, or uh, products to help the homeless because uh, the college was offering, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to students who um, could come up with products um, or services for that. And so I oversee a uh, or saw a smaller team for that. And I did another partnership with the Keck School for um, an app that was related to healthcare. So um, every semester now, I'm trying to do some kind of collaboration, whether it be in the private sector or within the university, to be connected really at a, than just having them do these individual projects where they come out at the end. Maybe they have a nice portfolio piece, but it never goes anywhere. And we also get the collaborative side of it is much stronger when you're you get the whole group to work on something rather than yeah individual there's definitely pros and cons of that because you have the issue of uh you know some some like in one team almost fell apart because <laughs> a couple of people thought they were doing all the work and other people ah. weren't oh, yeah. but you know that sort of goes with you know any sort of situation and, and so you have, have to kind of monitor it yeah it was Pretty standard in, in student groups, I think, as well. Well, well work. Work as well, yeah. I mean, that sounds like <laughs> good work experience. Yeah, yeah. everyone. Totally. Difficult to, difficult to just kind of yeah. maybe grade and mark, because mm. <laughs> mm. it's a disruption in that yeah. sense, but exactly. it mirrors mm. real life. What I learned from the situation, I mean, beyond getting to work on the Hyperloop project, and um, was that, you know, it, being a professor at a university and having all these really talented I mean, to get into the school, you have to have a 4.0. Um, you have to be, uh, the, they're, they're big data engineers. I, I, I have all this talent, mm. and I can put them in, uh, you know, push them in any direction I feel like it, if, uh, you know, within reason. So it's a great opportunity to exploit those talents. And so that was the first time I did it, and now I'm, I'm kind of addicted to it. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's fantastic. I also loved what you said about them having to go out and validate the problem, because that's not. Cause this is this exciting project like the Hyperloop. We're going to work on that, and you want to you start thinking solutions straight away. But you sent them out to gather data and, and verify that do we really have this problem right. that we're trying to solve? But they didn't like that, did they? Um, <laughs> well, that's part of my methodology, yeah. and you know that's very much you know aligned with the lean startup methodology mm. and Steve mm. Blank where. Um, you know, everyone, you know, and historically in software design or in a many types of design, industrial design, auto, automobile design, yeah, or military strategy, you're d you make a decision on, you know, here's our strategy, let's go make it. Mm -hmm. And um, I think what ha needs to happen is that the uh, agile methodology needs to apply to, th to the strategy as well, that it's mm -hmm. nimble that it can pivot, that um, people can change course as needed as they, as they have more evidence come in that they're moving in the wrong direction. Hmm. I, think, I think that's right, because when you, when you look at the way the, 
the agile methodology has been adopted by production, so development, and and how we're still a bit bolted on as UXers in that loop of production, and yep. and that reduces our ability to to actually iterate design ideas. I mean, yeah, we're prototyping, but we're not really properly going back up. Oh, yeah. to that problem statement level and saying, okay, was this the right thing? Because we've already got to that point in production. Right. The pressure on business is to produce stuff now because yeah. you know, you've done preparing. Now we're getting on with it. Yeah. No, it's definitely a luxury to either work in an academic environment or with startups because you're at the very beginning and there's uh, not, not necessarily an existing uh, you know, large-scale site um, or uh, already successful product. Mm. And so they're more open to um, this idea, this approach of you know us wanting to validate that as a problem and exactly like what are the, how are they currently uh, solving for this problem? Because you often find out the these these great insights about like how people go about you know solving problems using technology or not. Like I worked on a with a startup trying to do a carpooling application and we interviewed all these very busy housewives in San Francisco and we expected to hear that they had used some kind of Google Calendar for figuring out carpools for their kids mm. between you know, school and, and extracurricular activities. And what we found out was a lot of them just put everything on, on the refrigerator on a piece of paper with a magnet. You know, like, yeah. and others use spreadsheets and others use this. And if you don't figure out how they're currently solving the problem, then, you know, th then it's kind of hard to start devising the right solution because they're the switch, what they call the switching cost mm. for them might be like, well, it's easier. If people always propose, oh, I want to do a recipe app. And I'm like, well, to tell you the truth, every day when I'm cooking, if something, if I run out of milk, I go to the refrigerator and write on my magnet whiteboard mm. milk mm. and then before i go to the store i take a picture of it and yeah. now you <laughs> want me to like type it yeah. into the yeah. stupid phone while mm. my hands are dirty mm. you know so it's kind of funny mm. so i feel like you really need to understand you know how they're currently you know solving for that problem and if it's a big problem or a small problem before you say this is worth spending a bunch of money time and resources on Mm. Yeah, because you're not going to be convinced them to transition to your magic solution, which theoretically is the perfect one, but it's not going to get them to shift from their world. That's <laughs> right. You know, mm. I mean, ultimately <laughs> it comes to product market fit or if there isn't market demand and you make something that nobody wants, then you're fighting an uphill battle. So th some of the takeaways that you gave us at the end were like, based on the, the advice you had gotten, was you should always have a mentors and inspiring hero heroes throughout your work life. And I can really attest to that. I mean, as, as I've gotten myself a coach, things have changed, uh, like, in a, in a big way for me over the past year. Uh, but also, you said establish yourself as a contributor. Do you feel that you got to that goal, that you established yourself as a contributor to the Hyperloop project? I definitely mm. did on the Hyperloop yeah. project. I've always um, wanted to be a contributor contributor I think since I was in my mid-20s because um, I've been a college professor part-time since my mid-20s and there's something about sharing knowledge with others a, a lot of people um, you know they, they care all they care about they get out of school and they want to be mid-level designers or senior designers and you know they just mm -hmm. want to work their way up the ladder 
and they actually may decide they don't want to mentor or help or teach mm. others how to do what they know. They become like, it's proprietary, it's mm. mine, and you're going to take my job. Mm. In fact, my father, uh, you know, 15 years after teaching was like, you're teaching all these people to replace you. Mm. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's probably true. Mm. But the thing is, is the more I articulate my thoughts and the more I uh, feel like I'm actually helping people to get jobs or get into master's programs, I feel better inside. Mm. Mm. You know, that's that's how I feel like, uh, you know, I'm contributing to society. Because otherwise, you know, I do have a lot of time, uh, you know, that I, do, I spend where I have to take money and make a, a, a bunch of software for a bank or for a, a pet you know, pet website, mm. and, and it's it's meaningless. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just getting paid. Um, but teaching as a profession, I think, is, is is something that makes me feel like I'm I am helping and I'm collaborating by trying to get these uh, students to get excited about what we do. And that's that's no noble and honorable. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Jamie, and sure thank thing. you for being on the show. Thanks. Thank you for having mm -hmm. us. It's a very human story, this, from, from Jamie. It is. I, I like the way that she shared it and that she was admitting, sort of, that she really felt that she wasn't producing anything, that she was just touring with her book. And we've actually talked about this, us, uh, privately, about the, all these conference speakers. Do they actually do anything? Well, we, we, we're, we're lucky in that we get, we get to talk to a lot of these people, obviously, yeah. for the podcast, and, and a few of them have actually said to us well yeah. I, I don't do any work anymore mm. i don't do any of my thing anymore um mm. because there's no time because mm. you're doing the speaker circuit yeah so this is a this is a common thing uh, at least for this type of in, uh, this, this type of person which of course and i understand how you get there because it's very appealing it's loads of fun mm. and uh i mean you get all these people clapping for you when you're on stage so so it's I, so you get there and then but uh, I think she said there had been a, how many years there had been. Well, it's it's, it's this thing that you kind of build up your knowledge um, over a, over a long period of time. I mean, we're talking like you know a decade or, or oh, yeah. twenty years mm. in, in Jamie's case, and and then um, that inspires you to mm. to do something with the knowledge. Write yeah, a book. Exactly. So she took. Uh, so she had time been out, doing so years. many things before yeah, she wrote the book. Yeah. yeah. So you take time out to write a book, mm. and and then you, once you've written the book, mm. you then you've got to publish. You know, Market. Go around and tour it, market yeah. and tour it. Yeah. Um, so there you get you lose a bit of confidence in what you're actually always used to do. Mm. A bit of an imposter syndrome comes in here. They say, yeah. like, "Oh, I'm telling people to, to do all these things, but I'm not really doing it myself mm. anymore." Um, you're kind of preaching without doing. Mm. Um, but I think I think we all find ourselves in a bit of this situation. I mean, I, I know over the years, it's like you know, if we've all done, or me and you anyway, have done a lot of different things. You know, your journey mm. is not a straight line. You you have a path that goes from left to right. It goes up and down, and it's oh, yeah. you know I I can I can go a year without doing a certain mm. thing. That maybe a couple of years ago I did every week. Yeah, I mean when you and I so, met, we, we were doing or you were doing a lot of eye tracking, and you introduced me to I eye did tracking. Do, yeah. yeah, and I haven't I haven't a chance. Mm. I haven't had the assignments to do eye tracking for a few years now, yeah. because you know I, you end up in certain types of projects which need certain skills. Mm. So so yeah, so I mean. I, do you do you do you become bad at those things that you haven't practiced mm. recently, and you know, or is it like learning to ride a bike? Yeah, exactly. Mm. And I think for, I think in a lot of things, yeah, it is like riding a bike, and it doesn't. But take then you, you have long, all this other experience that you can also bring to the mm. table. So I think it's it's really valuable as well, just taking that time off and to reflect. 
Yeah. I mean, but she's been busy. As, I mean, she teaches. So for me, that's not doing nothing. That's doing a lot of things, uh, really. No, exactly. I mean, yeah. I'm framing it in that, in yeah. that way, but gosh, she's, she's not... It's not like she stopped doing stuff yeah. when she did all the, all the touring and all the teaching yeah, as well. I mean, it's exactly. incredibly busy. Yeah. It's more like she didn't find time to fit in the, the she didn't consultant feel, work. She didn't feel creative. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and LA wasn't mm. making her mm. feel creative. Mm. Um, but I, I, I also like the, the how the, she found the solution with, with effectively voluntary projects or kind of in utilizing her class. Yeah, I like that as well. Um, and I know that we've talked about that as a, as a way to to be creative you can mm. be creative almost about anything just mm. pick something mm. and, and work on it mm. doesn't have to be official in this sense it was yeah. actually you know agreed on mm. um but um but also i mean even using students like it seems to me like it's an untapped resource that more companies should be actually going to schools and putting real projects in the hands of students i mean it happens but yeah but at the same time it, you can't mm. you you can't outsource directly to to, to students i mean because mm. the the Point, the thing about being a student is that you're learning, mm-hmm. um, which means you need you need a mentor or a, or a, or a teacher um, to keep you on track, mm-hmm. or at least to transfer wisdom and knowledge across. Yeah. If if a company just goes like you know you're 20 people that need something to do, here's mm-hmm. something to do, then then that's slave labour rather than um, um, rather than transfer of knowledge. But it's a win-win situation. But you for gain both. experience. Yeah. So no, so my point was there that you've got to have someone steering the ship. There's got to be someone oh, yeah, at need, the helm. Yeah. Um, and, and in this case with Jamie, she's at the helm. And exactly. she's, she's guiding them, coaching them yeah. while um, giving them various projects to work on, not just mm. the same one every single term. And I did sort of push that because I liked it, the, the fact that they, she forced her students to go out and validate if the problem problem really exists and that's something that we usually don't take the time enough for oh or rather you i mean i think yeah that's an excellent point with the validating problems before mm. you start designing the solutions mm. and that is in so many situations especially when you're a consultant mm. you get hired in to do something and that thing to be done mm. is already decided mm. because that's why they've contacted someone to bring you in yeah <laughs> um if they hadn't decided what to do then often you wouldn't be called mm. and so it's it's some sometimes it's a bit of a luxury to have that ability to question validate from day one. Mm. Um, usually you can't, as Jamie said when we talked to her, that um, you've got an existing thing. There's an existing website, an existing app, mm. an existing business yeah. model. It's not day zero yeah. every time you turn up. Um, that's a much more realistic business situation mm. that it's established and you need to listen, understand, and... Um, yeah. Make compromises. Yeah, because you can't go in and question the validi- validity of the company the first thing you do. <laughs> no, <laughs> because you've, they obviously but, exist already. Yeah, uh, <laughs> although exactly. it's tempting sometimes. Well, you can't say no to assignments. True as well. Mm. Uh, there was some, one more thing I wanted to mention about this interview: uh, a Swinglish uh, lost in translation problem. <laughs> I said uh, several times, "Polo shirt." <laughs> was it several? Yes. All right, polo top. I think. <laughs> yeah. And and in Swedish that means turtleneck, but Polish shirt in English, of course, means like a tennis shirt. So it has a collar, but yeah, not a turtleneck. Welcome to UX podcast, the fashion edition. <laughs> it was Did black. You got the black. You got the color right. I got the color right. Yeah. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so, but that made me wonder: how many times do I actually use like Swedish phrases directly translate them to English, and people are wondering? What the hell is he talking about? We we almost certainly do it a lot of yeah. times. Yeah, even you do it, I think. Oh, I got it. I do it. I can't even, you know, it's my <laughs> language. So I just want to finish up a couple of then takeaways mm-hmm. then from 
this chat with Jamie. Mm-hmm. Um, always have mentors and inspiring heroes. Yeah. Establish yourself as a contributor. Which is one of the things that Jamie. Or position yourself as a contributor. Yeah. If you want to feel like you're creating. Um, and, and applying experience design to business strategy. Um, but I think, though, that um, validating the problems before you create solutions is is aspect of that. If you've enjoyed the show, we are UX Podcast everywhere, as you know. Uh, did we mention listener survey? Well, now we do. You've just done it. Yeah. UXpodcast.com slash survey. I never say forward slash. I hate people who say forward slash. Do you need to say that? <sighs> Depends on context. If I was working on like a regular expression, then I'd probably have to because a backward slash is very different to a forward slash. But if you just say slash. No, but then I don't know if it's backwards or forwards. I don't know whether you're escaping <laughs> something or whether signaling a command. Yeah, true. But when people say context, web, when people say web addresses, then it's a forward slash. It has to be. Yeah, well, yeah, because it'd be wrong if it was a backslash. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, context. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Who's there? Yeah. Yahoo. Nah. Yahoo's so 90s. I use Google. <laughs>